Good afternoon to all of you. I'm glad you are here in our midst. As you well know, we are in a sermon series entitled uh, Perfect Ten, which is speaking about the Ten Commandments and God's call for us to live out these commandments as His redeemed and uh, chosen people. And it's um, significant why we are doing it in this season of Lent. We started before Lent because we don't have 10 weeks of Lent, uh, but we, we decided to start it a bit early and then lead us into Lent. You realize that in Lent, we always recite the Ten Commandments. And it's a, a way in which we, in particular, because Lent is set aside for us to examine our hearts, examine our lives, to come before God and uh, lay ourselves bare and allow Him to um, convict us as well as uh, give us the opportunity to return to Him. That's what uh, Lent is meant to be. And through the season of Lent, we also read that collect uh, from Ash Wednesday, you know, because it's meant to be a penitential uh, season. And certainly that's what uh, we are here doing. Today we are looking in particular at the Seventh Commandment, and the Seventh Commandment reads, You shall not commit adultery. So obviously, today's topic has to do with sex. I've entitled the sermon, Let's Talk About Sex. And uh, I don't know about you, does this make you nervous? Right? It's not a topic we often talk about in church. In all honesty, I'm nervous. <laughs> don't know how you will feel about me after I've finished everything I have to say. But I assure you, what I bring to you is from the Word of God. Let's bow our heads for a word of prayer as we prepare our hearts to hear what He has to say to us. God, our gracious and loving Heavenly Father, we do thank you for this day, a day that you have made that we can rejoice and be glad in. And even as we open up your word and uh, search scriptures for what you uh, have laid out as the biblical sexual ethic, the way in which we are to conduct ourselves sexually, Lord, I pray that you would speak to us as only you can by your Holy Spirit. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of all our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O oh God, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. You shall not commit adultery. I think we realize that this uh, commandment goes beyond just the uh, uh, practice or the action of adultery. In fact, if you have any doubt, you know, um, when you read the Sermon on the Mount, you know... That Jesus uh, took the commandments and he took it to another level. Basically, he, he went beyond just the surface and keeping the letter of the law. He taught about what the spirit of the law, God's law, is about. And in it, remember, he said that if you looked at a woman with lust in your heart, for you, you have committed adultery. So it goes far beyond just the actions of adultery. It has to go with even our thought life. You know, it deals with uh, porn, pornography, deals with extramarital sexual activity, all sex outside of marriage in that sense. Outside of a marriage that's between one man and one woman is adultery. It, it falls under that category in that we have been unfaithful to what God had intended for uh, sex in the life, not only of the believer, of all human beings in some way, shape, or form. You know, this commandment is one that uh, 
I think more than most, seems to be out of step with society. Because we live in a world that's highly sexualized, right? Sex dominates uh, our society. Certainly, um, this past week, as I was researching for and uh, preparing the sermon, came across an article, um, and it was citing a, a study, and it's entitled, Why Sex Sells More Than Ever. And, and you know how advertisers often try and sell their products uh, uh, using sex or sexualized images. And this study from the University of Georgia looked at sexual ads that have appeared in magazines over the last 30 years. And they found that rather than you know, it going down, it's actually going up. And of course, there are all the usual suspects, you know, fashion, cosmetics, you know, uh, um, 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 food, they will uh, tie it around, you know, sexualized images. But sometimes even a car, I mean, what does a car have to do with sex? <laughs> and yet, uh, that's the reality. I was telling the morning service, you know, in my past life, now I'm not talking about reincarnation, I mean, before I became a pastor, I worked in a video production house, and uh, we had clients who were uh, um, advertising agencies, also uh, PR agencies, and I remember one of my clients, um, I was doing a, a video, a corporate video, and it was his client, although he was an ad man, he was, you know, engaged, and then he engaged us to do the actual production work, but he was there in the editing suite, and I think it was something to do with shipping, if I remember correctly. And so all the images were of ships, and on board ships, and at shipyards, and then he would stop, oh, he liked that particular shot, he'd say, oh, that's sexy, let's use that, you know. And I look at him and it's like, what? what do you mean? You know, but that's like the mentality uh, that's there in the world today. And now, in our day and age, when you go onto social media, isn't that what it is too? You know, highly sexualized images are the ones that get the most likes and follows. And if nothing else, now they call it, what, food porn. And it's not sex in the normal sense, but, you know, appealing to the appetites, the way... You, you take pictures of food. And uh, that is the reality we are faced with. But God gave this commandment because He understood that a biblical sexual ethic goes far beyond just preserving, from, uh, preserving the family. It's actually about also preserving society and God's order in creation. That, you know, it has far-reaching implications. And I'm going to explain it to you as I open up Scripture throughout both the Old and the New Testament, touching on the passages that were read, but other passages uh, I'll also uh, point us to. You know, we are where we are because years ago, decades ago, something called the sexual revolution took place. And uh, uh, its genesis was rooted partly in the fact that, you know, um, uh, researchers and scientists developed some uh, uh, thing, uh, uh, an oral contraceptive, in which they began to de-link sex from procreation. That sex suddenly became also recreation. You know, prior to this, if a man and woman lay down and they slept together, there is always an inevitable result. Not always, but more often than not, nine months later, you have a consequence. Right? And that uh, caused people to ask the question, do I want to do this or not? Am I prepared for this? And, and certainly, it didn't always work. 
But, you know, there is this inevitability. That's what, uh, one of the main reasons we have sex. But se the sexual revolution changed all that. And so we see sex as something which is meant to be enjoyed, meant to be uh, a part of human flourishing and living. And in some ways, you know, people like uh, my generation and older, we, we're sometimes aghast that, you know, like, is, are there no limits anymore? Uh, you, you think about it and you hear stories and you, you wonder. But you know what? Even in the sexual revolution, there are limits. Admittedly, those limits are quite far out there. For example, you, we still um, generally frown upon uh, uh, an adult sleeping with a child, right? Pedophilia is not something that's accepted. Although, when I was in uh, Toronto, I remember there was actually a symposium where they were talking about it and they were making the same kinds of arguments uh, for pedophilia as they would for LGBT. You know, it's innate that it is uh, who we are and if the child consents, you know, why not? <laughs> that sort of thing. I mean, it's, it, it sort of blows your mind. But fortunately, most of society still frowns upon it. It's definitely something that's prosecuted criminally. And to some extent, even adultery, you know, in, in general society is frowned upon, although that's changing. You know, what has arisen now is something called polyamory, which means um, having more than one partner. It's not polygamy in the normal sense because it doesn't matter whether they're married or not, but uh, it, it's having an open relationship. And there are people who are arguing for it, you know, that it ought to be recognized and accepted in, in society. But at the heart of all of it, the argument that is made is that if there is consent, what's the problem? You know, as adults, if I am okay with it, you are okay with it, and we're both, you know, capable of making informed consent, why do you want to uh, curtail my freedom? Why do you want to um, um, stop me from uh, enjoying life, as it were? Uh, we're going to deal with it as I go along and to look at it from God's perspective and understand why that is not uh, the, the, the way as Christians we would define what is right and wrong. But, you know, I think I've observed, and this is my observation, you know, I may be wrong, but you can go back and think about it and uh, look at the evidence before you. You know, with the rise of this uh, sexual revolution, there has been uh, um, also a, a rise, a correlation in the rise in terms of sex crimes. I would suggest to you that Me Too is a result a lot of this sexual promiscuity that's been accepted. Because the lines have been blurred. You know, where in the past, it was only acceptable within a marital relationship that you have sexual relations. There's no question about consent in a, a sense. You know, and if it's a loving marital relationship, certainly no one forces themselves on another. Right? And, and uh, it's, it's a, it's a self-giving, self-receiving uh, kind of relationship um, bathed in love. And you would never end up with this type of uh, Me Too circumstance. Now, I'm not saying that prior to the sexual revolution, there weren't people who abused others. And I'm not saying that there wasn't a sexual abuse that still took place. But, you know, in, in many of these cases, I, you, you read the court case, you read... Like, for instance, what happened with Harvey Weinstein, you know, insisted it was consensual. 
And the, the lines are quite blurred in, in, in so many ways. Just this week, I was uh, looking this morning at some uh, news because I want to keep up with the coronavirus issues, right? And there popped up also a, a, a news story about another undergraduate who was caught filming, you know, uh, ladies in the toilet. Uh, it's like, I don't know, I've lost count already how many <laughs> there have arisen. And I, I suspect, you know, I haven't done any research, but I don't think it's a very large stretch to assume that it's the rise of porn, where porn is now so easily available, right at your fingertips. You know, that the thrill, just looking at it, is no longer there. You want to catch it live yourself. And it's, it's risen, you know, caused this rise in, in, in voyeuristic incidents. But all of this, you know, is because I think there has been this blurred line or misunderstanding or, or um, a, a loss of standards of what is good and evil. I've quoted to you from uh, Archbishop William Temple's book, Christianity and the Social Order, before. Uh, he was the Archbishop of Canterbury during World War II. And in it, he said this, When we open our eyes as babies, we see the world stretching out around us. We are in the middle of it. I am the center of the world I see. Where the horizon is depends on where I stand. Some things hurt us. We hope they will not happen again. We call them bad. Some things please us. We hope they will happen again. We call them good. Our standard of value is the way things, the things affect ourselves. So each of us takes his place in the center of his own world. But I am not the center of the world or the standard of reference as between good and bad. I am not. And God is. You know, what we find ourselves in is a, a time in which they talk about situational ethics. You know, that it's all relative. It all depends. Depends on what? Depends on what I think is good and what I think is evil. And that is the order of the day. And this is why, you know, sometimes as Christians, we find ourselves running up against culture. You know, when we proclaim a biblical sexual ethic and they ask you, why do you believe that? You say, because the Bible says so. And people are deeply, you know, dissatisfied because they don't believe in God. Certainly, even if they did believe in God, they have their doubts whether the Bible is God's word. You know, and, and they would argue with you. So I want to give you some uh, reasons that, you know, if you look at Scripture, I think the Lord really has uh, our best interests at heart and He truly understands. And as we dig into the Word of God, we will see, you know, God's uh, plan for us as human beings to find a life that flourishes. Let's go all the way back to the Old Testament. You know, in the Old Testament, God uh, basically made uh, an inextricable link between adultery and idolatry. Right throughout the Old Testament, especially when judgment was brought against the nation of Israel, you know, they were often accused of being adulterous, of being unfaithful, of uh, forgetting who it is that they were called to be loyal to. And certainly, uh, for example, in Deuteronomy chapter 22, verse uh, 22, it says there, the law says, if a man is found lying with the wife of another man, 
both of them shall die. This man who lay with the woman and the woman. So you shall purge the evil from Israel. Wow, death penalty for adultery. Why so serious? Why is it? You know, shouldn't they just pay for their sins? And, but what this uh, passage tells us is that God took a very serious view because it had implications for society. That's why he says you need to purge the evil from Israel. It was a threat not just to the individuals, not just to their families, but it damaged society as a whole because it actually calls into question their relationship with God. And, you know, later on, Isaiah, when he was speaking to those in exile, you know, this linkage between idolatry and adultery is made more clear. In verse 5 of Isaiah 54, For your maker is your husband. The Lord of hosts is his name. And the Holy One of Israel is your Redeemer. The God of the whole earth he is called. For the Lord has called you like a wife, deserted and grieved in spirit, like a wife of youth when she is cast off, says your God. For a brief moment I deserted you, but with great compassion I will gather you. In overflowing anger for a moment I hid my face from you, but with everlasting love I will have compassion on you, says the Lord, your Redeemer. And he uses the metaphor of an unfaithful wife and a husband, you know, who is disappointed at her unfaithfulness. And yet, he points out that, you know, his anger lasts a moment, but his compassion, his forgiveness, his love lasts for a lifetime. And he continues to woo Israel back. But later on, Ezekiel chapter 23, verse 37, it's very, very clear. It says here, For they have committed adultery, talking about the nation of Israel, and blood is on their hands. With their idols they have committed adultery, and they have even offered up to them for food the children whom they had born to me. Right? Because sometimes you will read that they practice uh, child sacrifice because that was required of the god Molech, one of the gods of, of the land. And, you know, therefore, this was an act of spiritual adultery that God was calling out. And as with adultery, I believe adultery, uh, as with idolatry, sorry, <laughs> adultery is also an assault on who God is, which is why it's, it's, it's called out. Now, make it clear, you know, as you move to the New Testament, the, uh, uh, the punishment for adultery is no longer death, but it's a death within the community. You know, you are, you, if the person's unrepentant in 1 Corinthians, they're told to be excommunicated, put out of the community. And it's still a very serious offense because it's an offense against God. And, and things are changed now in that respect. But the point of all of it is this. God, who designed marriage, intended for marriage to point to the relationship that He has with His people. Marriage was meant to reflect the Creator's design. Remember the other week I was reading from Genesis chapter 1, that He made human beings in His image. Male and female, 
He created them in His image. That men and women reflect the image of God. But more specifically, you know, if you look at the passage in uh, uh, Scripture, especially in Genesis 2, which is the uh, um, um, more detailed description of the uh, creation of human beings, of Adam and Eve specifically, you know, we see that uh, um, God created Adam and Eve because as, you know, Adam was looking throughout he needed a helper fit for him. And God provided Eve, created Eve out of his side so that she would be like him, but yet also different from him. An other, so to speak. And it is because of this union with the other, reflecting our uh, relationship with God, it, in the same way we are called to be united with the one who is other, ultimately other, different from us. And this is one of the chief reasons why it's clear to me from Scripture that, you know, God calls homosexuality sin. It is because it is contrary to design that God intended that it would be a relationship between a man and a woman to others, you know, to reflect the relationship we as human beings ultimately have with God who is another. And, you know, in a homosexual relationship, the tenden- what it is, is you want to have a relationship with someone just like you. As opposed to someone different, diametrically opposed. I've been doing uh, marriage prep, and Karen and I have been married 27 years. Is it 27 years? Lose <laughs> count. 20, 27 years this year. And uh, we tell our, our young couples who are uh, getting ready for marriage, you know, you know, I've been married to her 27 years. I still don't understand her. <laughs> because she's so other. You know, I, 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 I know she will react to something I do, but I don't understand why she reacts the way she does, for example. And she says exactly the same about me. You know, and, and, and there is this sense in which that other is there. Which is why, you know, ultimately, I, I believe, you know, God has set up this sexual ethic, not because He's trying to, you know, crimp our style or to... To, to help us to, uh, or to kill our joy, but actually because of in His intent and His design for life. You know, even as we talk about gender, the latest thing that people talk about is gender dysphoria. You know, we're not so plagued by it here and now. But for example, I know um, um, in the university, I used to uh, help uh, teach in, in, in university or you know, uh, uh, um, assisted my, my professor in some classes. And I didn't actually teach. I just went and, you know, helped most of the time. They get you to grade all the papers. <laughs> in, in teaching, I know that now today, when they do an introduction, they, uh, in a lot of Western universities, they ask for the pronoun you prefer. Right? I mean, in the past, if you are John, it's him, what? he. <laughs> but John could say to me, uh, she, her or it, them, you know, and uh, they uh, basically, in, because of gender dysphoria, gender dysphoria is where a person is uncomfortable in the gender of their birth. And, you know, they feel outside of their skin. They were born a male, they feel more like a female. And I don't want to make light of it because I realize and recognize this is a very real situation and circumstance and a condition that people suffer through and they struggle with 
But having said that, you know, science is very clear. I were to take the person, no matter how they self-identify, and I put them through a DNA test, it will tell me that you are either XX or XY. You know, and, and to me, the, the way in which you deal with it is to help a person deal with this uh, um, issue that they are struggling with. And I don't want to get into all the ins and outs of it because there's no time or, and this is not the place. But, you know, the way things are going, it's becoming more and more difficult for people to know how to deal with it. Years ago in Vancouver, Canada, uh, there was a women's shelter that was set up by uh, the feminists because, you know, there are women who are raped and abused and they wanted to have a shelter which, you know, only uh, women staff it and only women are allowed because many of them who've gone through that experience have a, a deep resentment and fear of, of uh, the male gender, the male person, right? So they wanted to exclude any men from their shelter. Uh, started in uh, very liberal circumstances with good intentions. And Canada, as you know, will always uh, give government aid to these types of social uh, um, uh, help type organizations. Last year, this women's shelter got their government aid um, cut off. The government decided we cannot fund you anymore. Why? Because a trans woman wanted to Volunteer. Trans woman is a person who was born male but believes that they are female and identifies as female. That person wanted to volunteer as a counselor. And they said no because, you know, while you may uh, want to uh, help and you identify as female, but you have all the male parts. And these women are not comfortable and they said no, we cannot accept you. And they won't take uh, trans women if they come and need help because. They recognize, you know, abuse is not confined to any one gender, but they would refer you somewhere else and send you there. And so the government said, no, you are too discriminatory. So we cut you off. And, you know, it's like the, the uh, people with liberal tendencies, they can't even begin to decide who and uh, uh, where do we stand on this whole issue. And, you know, as we look at it, we would say, what a mess. And it's easy for us to point fingers at them and say, ah, yeah, it's this problem that they have. But if we are honest and if we stop and we look at this commandment and we apply it not just to people out there, but more importantly, apply it to ourselves, we have to admit that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That if we care to be open and honest about it and we allow the Word of God to examine our hearts, we will see that there is sexual brokenness in each and every one of us. Albeit in different degrees and different orders. But there are ways in which sexual sin is there. You know, I, I asked, I obviously cannot say all of us have evident sexual sin, but I can say uh, without a doubt that most of us do. Why can I say that? Because, you know, a couple of years ago, we did the whole life church inventory. <laughs> and the results tell me that a majority of us have at some point accessed pornography. And the Bible tells us, if you've looked 
at a person with lust in your heart, you have committed the sin of adultery. And, you know, all of us struggle uh, with this area. And I think as Christians, we have done a great disservice because when we speak out against sexual sin, we tend to identify only certain types of sexual sin. And at times, you know, it's right that we are concerned about how the LGBT uh, uh, groups are trying to push forward their agenda. And we want to stand and stand for righteousness in our land. But sometimes the ways in which we speak about it are unhelpful because we pit ourselves against them and we speak as if, you know, we are uh, um, perfect, that we are... Uh, uh, in the right and they are in the wrong and, and, and talk about it as if we have no sin and only they have sin. But the Bible tells us and this passage obviously tells us that any sexual activity outside of marriage is sin. And it is far more widespread than we care to admit. That as Jesus warned us, we should not be straining at the splinters in the eyes of others when we have whole logs to deal with in our own. How then do we make things right? You know, the question that is often asked, and I think I've encountered a few times, especially with uh, younger generations, even amongst Christians, is why do you as Christians want to meddle in other people's bedrooms? You know, do you Christians think that sex is dirty? that you have such a low view of sex that you know you, you, you want to curtail people's sexual activity. And, you know, part of the thinking behind that is, is they think that sex is um, intrinsic to what it means to be human. That if you don't have sex, you will suffer in life. And you are less than human. And, you know, if you don't have a healthy sexual life, life is not worth living. That's the narrative that is out there. And so therefore, you know, in Christians, when we, become, uh, uh, we, we speak out about the Christian sexual ethic, that sex is only meant to be practiced between a husband and a wife within the bounds of uh, um, a faithful, uh, chaste marriage, then everyone else has to stop that we are restricting everybody's freedom. Now make no mistake about it, God created sex. And He had an intention for it. And when He calls us to be faithful, you know, to use it within marriage, it's, because, it's not because He has a low view of sex, but because He has a much higher view of what the sexual relationship is. That it is the highest form of intimacy between a man and a woman. Adam knew Eve because, you know, it's, it's where you really don't hold back if you want to have a healthy sexual uh, um, relationship with your wife or your spouse, you know, it needs to be a relationship that is equal parts giving and receiving. That you give fully of yourself to the other and you, that way you can receive fully from the other. If you have a sexual relationship where you're not willing to give parts of yourself, you withhold, you're not ready to take vows, you don't want to put a ring on it, you don't want to, you know, uh, commingle your accounts and, and go set out and, 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 and start a life together. It is less than a full um, union. 
and it becomes less than satisfying. And this is really uh, what Paul was trying to point out in the passage we read from Ephesians chapter 5, verses 31 and 32, where he says, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. He calls it a mystery, mysterion in the Greek. And it has a sense of uh, a secret, but not a secret that you need to figure out, like a murder mystery, you know, and you try and go through the steps and de- decipher for yourself who done it. But it's, it's really a sense in which it is knowledge which you would not have unless someone discloses it to you. And what he was trying to say is that the revelation, this mystery that has been revealed, is the mystery of God's plan for salvation. Because, you know, the book of Ephesians is sometimes called a letter of uh, mystery because throughout Ephesians, Paul uses this term mystery on mystery several times. And if you look at it carefully, you will see that he's really talking about the mystery that he points to is God's plan to save humankind. How we have been uh, separated from God because of our sin, but God didn't abandon us. But, you know, throughout history, it is God's uh, actions which culminate in the person of Jesus Christ to reconcile us to himself. And in this passage, Paul makes it very clear that marriage tells us about that reconciliation taking place between husband and wife. It's meant to reflect the relationship of Christ and His church. George Knight, who is a a commentator on uh, a Bible teacher, says this about the passage. Paul saw that when God designed the original marriage, He already had Christ and the church in mind. This is one of God's great purposes in marriage, to picture the relationship between Christ and His redeemed people forever. And like I say, it is rooted ultimately in creation, in creation's story, that God gave uh, gave this pattern for us Because not only was he saying this is how men and women are to relate to each other, but this is how God longs to relate to his people. We see in the uh, uh, story in Genesis 2 where he looked and he said it's not good for man to be alone. And because of that, God himself became God for us. He didn't leave us alone in our trespasses and sins, but he came to us. And, you know, the husband is, uh, and wife are called to leave their family and then to cleave to one another. That's precisely what Jesus did, isn't it? When he left his home above and he came down and joined himself to us, sinful humanity, and the two became one flesh, is really a picture of the incarnation. where Fully God and fully man were united in the person of Jesus Christ. That ultimately, you know, I believe, you know, it's satanic (laughs) at the end of the day. Why Satan hates marriages and attacks the family 
because when he can, you know, destroy family and destroy marriages, he can destroy uh, uh, the, re- the, the, the best model of God's relationship with his people. It is the way in which, you know, it mars the image of what God intends to do in reconciling himself to the world, or the world to himself, rather. In conclusion, this is why sex is far too important for just casual hookups. It is far too important for people to just fall in and out of sexual relationships. Tim Keller, in his book on um, um, the meaning of marriage, he says this, that sex is perhaps the most powerful God-created way to help you give your entire self to another human being. You know, and that's why, whether you like it or not, you know, in the sexual act, something happens when you consummate that act that creates a a deep intimacy with the person that you have sex with. Whether you happen to be married to them or not, whether you like it or not, that's why, you know, our our male-female relationships now in this day and age in the sexual revolution are so difficult to navigate because all these feelings have gotten in the way. I like C.S. Lewis and the metaphor he used to talk about sex. He said that sex without marriage is like tasting food without swallowing and digesting. I mean, you look at me, you know I'm a foodie, right? <laughs> I enjoy good food. That's why I always wait and can't wait for Pak Chi to invite me to his home for dinner because he's a good cook and he always gives me holy out, you know. But think about it. If you just taste and you enjoy the taste, it's pleasurable, but if you don't swallow and digest, you're ultimately deeply unsatisfied. That's going to go home, you know, you taste it, and then you just spit it out. You're going to go home hungry. Not only that, you're going to go home undernourished. And ultimately, this is what is going to kill you. And that's why I like C.S. Lewis's metaphor, that sex without marriage is like tasting food without swallowing or digesting. Using sex purely for recreation and for personal pleasure misuses and misses the very purpose. And this is why it is ultimately unsatisfying. We talk about how, you know, ultimately people are looking for love in all the wrong places. And we think of it in terms of sex. But the reality is this. Ever since the fall, when our unbroken fellowship with God was marred, there has been a deep longing in our heart to connect with the one who knows you best. And this longing in our heart is a God-shaped hole. It is a hole that can never be filled unless it is filled by Jesus Christ. And I would say to you, as much as I say, you know, marriage is, is, is to be held in high esteem and, and God's intent for marriage, ultimately, it is actually, all it is, is a sign to the relationship that we are to have with Christ. Which is why, you know, even if you are single and even if you've gone through life without sex and chosen to be chaste because you are not married you would still find your fulfillment 
and all of us find our fulfillment ultimately in our relationship with Jesus Christ. And I want to say something to, to those who think, you know, I remember talking with a young man in Canada that, that was um, mentoring and, and teaching, and he was, had a good friend who was um, a homosexual and, you know, found it very hard to come to terms with the biblical sexual ethic. Does this mean, you know, for the rest of my life, I will never uh, have a sexual relationship or romantic relationship with someone? You know, and he, this... this young Christian man asked me the question, how can we ask them to suffer like that? Because the implication is they have to suffer by withholding sex. But I say to him, you know, this is a fact of life. All of us suffer. All of us, if we are married or not, are called to remain chaste if we are not having sex within a marital relationship between husband and wife. Which means singles suffer even if they're heterosexual in orientation because they are to remain chaste. As married people, you know, there's not always the time in which you can have sex. And you have to withhold your inclinations, your desire to have sex because, you know, I have to remain chaste and faithful to my wife. It is true of all of us that, you know, this standard applies to everyone in that sense. And it, it, it is because we know and we understand this is God's intention and this is where God's best is intended for us. And this is why, you know, Jesus understood and he gave this invitation to us to come to him, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And that whom the Son of God sets free shall be free indeed. You know, this freedom that we long for is not just a freedom from temptation, but it is, uh, um, this person, David White, wrote a book. Um, what's the book called? Let me find it. It's called uh, Sexual Sanity for Men. It's a workbook which I've uh, in the past done with a couple of people, and I've found, you know, powerful and helpful, he says this, freedom is the increasing ability to choose holiness out of love for Christ, despite the relentlessness of temptation. You know, today, as I address you, I recognize that as we deal, you know, with the uh, uh, commandments of God, God uses it to challenge us and to call into question our actions, and the way in which we live our lives. And I, you know, was nervous about this particular commandment because I realized it hits at the very core of a lot of people's being. You know, a lot of sins, people will come and speak to me about. But when it comes to sexual sin, very few people are willing to come and admit that they struggle in this particular area. And yet I know it is widespread. I realize because I myself struggle with it. And the challenge is to be truly known by others, to bring things into the light. I have prayer partners, you know, that I speak with and, and we work through. And by God's grace, the change happens, but not alone. It happens in community. The Bible tells us if you walk in the light as He is in the light, you have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus Christ, which cleanses every sin, 
is then at work. And brothers and sisters dwell together in unity and look to one another and ultimately, you know, find a way to lay down our idols at the foot of the cross. I've gone on far longer than I should have. But, you know, this is such an important topic that I think we... I, I want to speak to you as honestly as I can and lay myself there before you because I believe it is such an important topic that Jesus says to us, Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, I will give you rest. As we come to the table of the Lord, you know, this is an opportunity for us to come before Him and to lay down this sin before Him and to receive His forgiveness. You know, if you have come under the conviction of the Word of God, I hope that you don't leave this place in condemnation. Yes, it is true that God hates sin. And, you know, He hates all sin, not one sin more than the other, but in particular this sin, I, as I've already shared with you, how, how much it mars the image of God and His relationship with us, His people. I leave you with this thought. You remember in uh, John's Gospel, chapter 8, there was a woman who was caught in adultery. And she was brought before Jesus by some religious leaders. Their intention was to trap him. Because they knew that Jesus demonstrated grace and truth. He was the embodiment of grace and truth. How would Jesus deal with this woman who was caught in the act of adultery, that's what that passage tells us. It leaves you the question, what were they doing, right? <laughs> they were original voyeurs, and they must have caught her in the act. But, remember what Jesus did? Jesus didn't dismiss the sin. He said, yes, stone her. But you, who are without sin, you cast the first stone. And the account tells us, starting from the oldest, I think that's significant. The longer you live, the more sins you have. The more you have to be honest that you are not sinless. Starting with the oldest, right down to the very last person that was there, they walked away and left her. Because none of them could say, I can stand up and I can cast a stone because I have no sin. And Jesus asked her, woman, where are your accusers? She says, there are none, Lord. And he says, neither do I condemn you, but go and sin no more. Jesus, who is the very image of God, who shows us the way to the Father, tells us this is the God whom we worship. That if you are under the conviction of sin, come before him today and receive your forgiveness. Forgiveness that He gives freely because of that finished work on the cross. And that's what we remember when we come to His table. His body that's broken for us and His blood that is shed for us. That He can make all things new so that we can go and sin no more. Let's bow our heads for a word of prayer. Gracious and loving Heavenly Father, we come before you at a time like this, acknowledging our brokenness, 
the ways in which, Lord, we have failed to live up to our own standards, Lord, let alone yours. And even as the law of God comes like a hammer to shatter our self-deception and all our self-justification projects, I pray, Lord, that the word of your gospel, the forgiveness that you give freely to us because of the finished work of Jesus on the cross, will come as a healing balm, will come as a word that recreates new life in us. Helping us, Lord, to leave behind the things which destroy so that we may find life and have life in you, abundant life that you intend for each and every one of us to have. Do your deep work in us, Lord, we ask and we pray by your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name we pray and all God's people say, Amen.